There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96 FM. 1857-15996 is the number to call. The text to WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Your email, opinion at 96fm.ie. Twitter is at opinionline96 with the hashtag, hashtag OL96. And of course, we have the Cork's 96FM Facebook page for you. Uh, you can message us there. Mark your messages, please, for the attention of the Opinion Line. Coming up later this morning, we will be reflecting on the past 161 days. If I have to stay here until I'm 90 years of age, we will get it. That's the determination in the Debenhams workers. That's after 11 o'clock this morning. We'll be joined by some of the lads from Vita Cortex who are there today to support them. And I was down with the... Uh, workers yesterday, the Debenhams workers, and we had a good long conversation, a few of us, about what it's been like for the last 161 days. And I can tell you, they're a determined bunch. They are going nowhere. That's all to come. Also checking in with the situation in Dublin, because Dublin is about to be switched up to stage three or to level three, which will effectively cut it off from the rest of us under the new five-point plan, but in the course of trying to do that, and you can almost hear the frustration in the voice of the Chief Medical Officer, the Acting Chief Medical Officer this morning on another national radio interview, trying to effectively tell people you need to do what you're told, and also now, we've got layers of bureaucracy, I mean layers of bureaucracy, between Neffet, who are the experts, and the government, who are, well, whatever they are, I'll get into all of that in the next while. But we are in a very serious situation. Uh, Ireland seems to be, or at least our capital, seems to be on the brink of a devastating second wave. And it does appear that we have to do something quickly or we're going to be in very serious trouble. Uh, I'm delighted to go to Geneva, Switzerland, to speak with Dr. David Nabarro, who is one of the World Health Organization's special envoys on COVID-19, and he's made time in his very busy schedule to join me this morning on the Opinion Line. Dr. Nabarro, good morning. Good morning to you, sir. How do you do? Very well. Very good, and welcome indeed to the programme. Dr. Nabarro, you told MPs in your native UK yesterday or the day before that this is worse than science fiction and that this is going to, that we are nowhere near halfway in this pandemic. Yeah. Expand, please. Yeah. Well, first of all, when we were planning to respond to pandemics, something that I've been doing for 15 years, really, over my life, uh, we, I don't think, realised just how difficult it was going to be to get the different leaders in our world to come together and deal with this problem as something that really needs all of us working together. And so I think that my main concern is that most of the science fiction that you get about disease outbreaks 
usually presents the response as a solid and integrated response amongst everybody. And we have the most bizarre thing going on at the moment, as far as I'm concerned, which is, in some cases, leaders actually saying this pandemic is over-exaggerated by the health people and actually ridiculing their health people on Twitter and so on. That's not what we were imagining when we were planning, and that's not what I've seen in any kind of science fiction either. So I was really trying to get at the fact that this is a really serious problem and the unity of response is lacking. The second thing, quickly, is that my, my recognition is this virus has the capacity to spread very quickly anywhere, and so far it's only affected a, quite a small proportion of the world population, there's still a lot more people to be infected. There's nothing to stop this virus going on moving around. And that's why I say that I believe we're at the beginning. We're not at the end. We slowed it down with the lockdowns, but it's still going to come back. And therefore, I say to everybody, it's up to us to get ahead of this virus and to stop it from coming back and welling up. And we know what to do. We know what we've got to do. We know what governments have got to do. We know what businesses have got to do. And we need to get ahead and do it, get on top of it and get on with our lives with this new virus as a nuisance, but not letting it stop everything. Now, we had our national lockdown here like they had in many other countries. Now we're gone to sort of county type lockdowns. There's talk that you could go to really miniature lockdowns, even postal code areas. Is that something we can do? Is that something we should be focusing on? If you know where the virus is, then uh, you can react to it with a lot of precision. If you've got enough testing and the testing gives you results quickly, you can move your testing to where you've got a spike developing and then you can do postcode style micromanagement. I'm not going to use the word lockdown because I'd much prefer to talk about movement restrictions. Mm. That's mm. what you're trying to do is to stop people moving around so much. Then you you contain and suppress the outbreak it's usually quite a quick job you've got to isolate people with the disease and find their contacts and isolate them but it's doable and we've seen it done in some countries and then you get on with life i think my slogan for the future is let's get ready for covid and let's get on with life despite the fact that covid's with us Testing, of course, is the key. Uh, And your colleague at WHO, uh, Mike Ryan, has been saying test, test, test since day one of this. Is testing at the level it should be yet? And is there? Because we're hearing rumours, Dr. Nabarro, we're hearing rumours of a global shortage of reagent. Yeah, I think the demand for testing has just gone through the roof. You see, you want testing to do this micro-containment strategy. You want testing to help people in hospitals and care homes know that they're free of disease. You want testing to enable whole um, factories to be able to test their staff. Uh, And you want testing so that individuals can go and find out what's happening. And we all know people who don't know whether they've got COVID or not. So, yes, testing is really important. And the demand for testing is huge. The tests themselves are not easy to do. And yes, the reagents are quite in short supply. I think that um, uh, uh, governments are going to ration their tests, and that's a bit unfortunate. I do want to try to make sure that you get results quickly. There's no point if you have to wait around for four or five days for a result. And I am really keen that we encourage those who are developing new and quick tests 
and trying to test them out to see that they work. They need to be given the magic carpet ride to really get themselves working hard because that's going to be the thing that makes a difference to our holidays, to our sporting events, to our factories, to our shops, to our families. It is getting quick tests and making sure that they work. When we started this, there was the one type of test, and we know it takes a little bit of time. There are a lot of work going on around the world into quicker tests. Are they as reliable, for example? Well, there's no point in having a test that's not reliable. Quite honestly, if you've got a test that only gives you, say, 70% chance of getting a true answer, that's a bit close to the edge. And, And my own view is... We really are are after what we call full reliability, which means having virtually no false negatives and no false positives. You want to be sure that if somebody is tested and they've got the COVID, that it's coming up in the result. That, That takes a bit of time. Actually, it's requiring some quite intricate science. But I'm working with several people. I mean, there are people who tell me what they're up to who say that they think they're quite close. And I think that that news about the likelihood of good, quick, easy, cheap tests that can be done anywhere and get you a quick answer, that's what we need. That's what is going to help us all get life going again. You're absolutely right to focus on that, in my view. Now, we had our problems in meat plants. The, the UK yeah. had problems in meat plants all over the world. Yeah. Germany had problems in meat plants. Yeah. And there are other high-risk areas like nursing homes and, and care yeah. homes. Is anyone on top of that problem worldwide, do you think? And how do they do it? You know, what I would like is the whole world, through their leaders, to say, we've got about 10 big issues that we need to work together on because we're all facing them. One of those is the way that COVID seems to spread in cold manufacturing settings, which is where food is looked after, where uh, animals are cut up or fish are cut up and where they're packaged and then where sandwiches and other things are made. That seems to be where the problem really does get stuck in. I, I think that I mean, we've got some pretty clear ideas what's going on. I've done some work on it. Others have. But I'd like all leaders to say to the World Health Organization, you know, you're our World Health Organization. Give us the latest on meat plants, uh, residential care, and we will pay attention to it. What happens right now is the World Health Organization does the guidance. But the countries seem to be quite often saying, well, we know better than the World Health Organization and we're going to do things our way. Not Ireland, which is a great country to work with, and not all countries, but if I could get one wish come true, it would be for world leaders to recognize that this problem is bigger than any individual country. It's something the whole world needs to focus on as a common enemy. Let's have six months of ceasefire on having battles with each other and fighting and sending rude messages about each other on Twitter and just get on and deal with the problem because we're going to have a million dead, official dead from COVID very soon. The number will increase, I'm afraid, to much larger numbers if we can't get everybody working together to deal with the kind of problems you identified. Where are we with a usable vaccine, Dr. Nabarro, here, all kinds of, uh, of stories. And we're thinking we're in this kind of a, a lifestyle, this new normal, as it were, until we get a working vaccine. Where are we? Well, uh, my colleagues say to me several things. Number one, don't imagine that a vaccine is like a magic wand 
Everybody gets vaccinated and you can go back to normal. I mean, we've got a vaccine against measles and we thought we were going to get really good control of measles and then a whole series of problems have arisen. Uh, communities are saying we don't want to be vaccinated and suddenly we've got measles coming back actually quite nastily in some parts of the world. A vaccine will be part of the solution, not the whole solution. At the moment, we don't have a vaccine. There are about seven going through the big trials to see whether or not they are safe and whether or not they work. There is a general feeling that it's unlikely that when we've gone through these trials with the seven, that we will have one that is working for everybody. It'll probably have some impact in, it, in terms of efficacy, which means that it works. But we fear that it probably won't last for a long time, so there'll be need for boosters. Secondly, we really do have to check that they're safe. And my colleagues tell me it's going to be until well into next year that we'll have the results, even for these early vaccines. And the World Health Organization chief scientist has been very clear that she doesn't think that everybody in the world who needs vaccine will be able to get vaccinated, even if everything goes well, until 2022. So what we're saying to everybody is let's learn to live with this virus as a nasty presence in our lives anyway. If the vaccine comes along, that gives us extra ammunition. But we've got to be able to get on top of it now because we don't want to be going on with this life that's constantly under the threat of lockdown uh, for the foreseeable future, we must come out of that and get into normal life, but being defended against the virus. Dr. Nimbara, thank you so much for your time this morning. I do appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope I wasn't too long-winded. And best wishes to the people of Ireland, particularly those listening to your show. Uh, I think you're doing really, really well on dealing with this problem. And thank you for all, that, all your hardship, but at the same time, your hard work. And thank you for, for your work as well and, and your colleagues. Dr. David DeMera joining us from Geneva, Switzerland, special envoy to the World Health Organization on COVID-19 with an impressive CV. A most impressive CV has Dr. Nabarro. He worked, for example, on dealing with Ebola, he, or Ebola rather. He worked on dealing with cholera. He had worked on dealing with um, malaria. The man has worked on everything all over the world in dealing with serious disease. So he kind of knows his onions. And we've been trying to get him for, for a while. And uh, thanks to Fergal for the legwork on that one because it was, we're trying to get that to time it in with heading into what we do think is a second wave uh, in, uh, in, in Ireland. We are in, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. And uh, we just need to listen to the guy. Do you know what I mean? Listen to him. Let's find out what is happening in Dublin next. It's huge. It's historic. Champions of England, Liverpool. And it's here. What a free kick from Kevin De Bruyne. Join me, Trevor Welch, on 96fm.ie as we bring you the Premier League live exclusively online. This Saturday, it's Everton versus West Brom at 12.30. Leeds United versus Fulham at 3. Manchester United versus Crystal Palace at 5.30. And Arsenal versus West Ham at 8. Go, go. The Premier League Live Online, powered by TalkSport. Listen every Saturday by downloading the Cork's 96FM app or see 96FM.ie. 
This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. From one very busy man to another, political correspondent Sean Defoe. Sean, good morning. Morning. Um, what is the situation with Dublin? Are we going to level three up there? Do we know? Yeah, I think it's almost certain. We don't have the confirmation yet. And the National Public Health Emergency Team meeting from around 10 o'clock to actually make their recommendation and decide. But it's probably going to be tomorrow before the government actually confirms it. That's because of this new um, decision-making process that they have under the roadmap that was published on Tuesday. So what will happen today is that uh, this morning, NEFIT will consider what to do with Dublin and indeed nationally because there are other areas they're worried about other than Dublin, although it looks as though the capital will be the only one that jumps up to level three. And that will then go to this new steering group, um, as it's called, shared by the Secretary-General of the Department of the Taoiseach, Martin Fraser, and with input from a number of government departments. That's basically there now to examine what the societal and economic impact of any further restrictions will be, and that's particularly um, important, I think, in this case, because it is Dublin, because Dublin is so often the economic driver um, of the country. I think €43 of every 100 generated in the country comes out of Dublin, so they are very careful with how what restrictions they're going to be put in. That group will then either tailor the recommendations or make its own recommendations that will go to a cabinet subcommittee uh, comprising the Taoiseach, the Taunashta, Eamon Ryan, the Health Minister and the Finance Minister tomorrow morning and they'll be the ones who ultimately decide ahead of a full cabinet meeting tomorrow afternoon but certainly what I'm picking up on the ground is that level three is coming for Dublin and probably coming for Dublin for midnight on Friday. Now, I got the distinct impression and so did many others on social media this morning that Dr Ronan Lynn, who was on Morning Ireland was getting very frustrated with all these different layers of administration that his he and his experts have to go through. He really is, isn't he? Well, it's Put it this way, so he made recommendations last Thursday to be implemented for Dublin to be put onto this phase two and a half. They weren't done until Tuesday. Now he is saying, and anyone who watched last night's press conference with him and Professor Philip Nolan, I'd certainly put the scares up me with Philip Nolan saying that this is the, the most worried he's been since the peak of this virus yeah. in April and that we could have 500 to 1,000 cases per day by the middle of next month if we don't take any sort of an action. And now it has to go through all these hoops. But also, this is actually, under the new plan, this is actually an expedited process. It getting done the next day is actually fairly quick. And the model that the government is going to use for all its future considerations, be it the nationwide restrictions in three weeks' time or whatever they put in for Dublin, it could be up to five days between Ronan Glynn making his recommendations and the government taking action. They want him to do it on a Thursday morning at Neffet, it then to go to this steering group and that the Cabinet subcommittee wouldn't meet until the following Monday ahead of Tuesday's Cabinet meeting. So there's quite a long time there, particularly when we're seeing this uptick in the, uh, in the virus in many places across the country and when swift action, as we saw initially, might be needed. In other words, by the time the government makes a decision and, and makes and implements something, you could have another thousand cases potentially. I mean, we could. It depends on what the numbers are. At the rate they're going at the moment, yeah. Uh, certainly the rates are going. I mean, you, you could easily see somewhere in the region of another 300 cases and 200 in Dublin tonight uh, and, and the same uh, tomorrow. Now, I think th- there was some talk yesterday that the government might try to push this decision into next week because it being, put, like putting it simply, and they'll never make it this way, they don't want to shut D- Dublin down because of the economic damage it might do. So they are have been trying to give Dublin and Dubliners as much time as possible to actually curb their behaviour and see, is this just a blip in the road and can we bring the number down but that doesn't seem <clears throat> excuse me 
to be the way that this is going and they are going to need to take action before the weekend, I think. And finally, Sean, and briefly, what is the politics of all this layering? Why do we need nearly five layers before a decision is made? So there's a couple of different bits to it as to why this different group was, was implemented in my understanding of it. One is that for the first half of this government, the first little while of this government, they were careening from one thing to another, knee-jerk reactions to everything, not just in terms of COVID, but other, Barry Cowan, other things we've talked about on this show before, and they very much want to stop that and get the communications right around it. So they, they want to take a little bit longer to consider it. And also, given that, and based on what uh, Dr. Navarro was saying to you there, we're going to be living with this for a long time. A vaccine is not coming around the corner anytime soon in the first half of next year, or certainly not going to be widely available in the first half of next year. But society has to go on. We can't live in a constant lockdown the way things were with March. It's just not possible to do that uh, for a year. It's, it's too taxing mentally on people. Economically, it would absolutely destroy the country. There are people whose businesses have gone under, and it's hugely depressing for people. So we have to find a medium in between and this steering group that they've implemented is basically trying to do that saying okay how can we keep the schools open in all circumstances if Nefford recommends something is there any way we can keep uh, some businesses open even um, from a remote business you know to try and keep the economy taking over so that's what they're trying to do but it may come uh, in some cases at the cost of expediency all right, listen, Sean, thank you for your time this morning. Sean Defoe, political correspondent. Appreciate that. So Dublin probably into stage three uh, by the weekend. But this layering, as I'm calling it. So you have NEFID, National Public Health Emergency Team, with 40 members on it, I think, maybe even more. They meet their doctors, their scientists, their public health advisors. They're the experts. So the experts meet and they say, this is what we think you should do in the current circumstances. And then it goes to the Civil Service Committee, uh, the secretaries of the Taoiseach and the various civil servants from the department, and they discuss it. So they take the advice from the experts and they discuss it at civil service level. Then it goes to the Cabinet Subcommittee uh, and they go through it. So they deal with what the scientists have said, and they deal with what the permanent government, the civil servants have said. And then they have a chat about it. We'll say Michal, Leo, Eamon, Stephen Donnelly, and maybe one or two more. And then when they're finished waffling and talking, they bring it to the cabinet. And the cabinet makes a decision. And it can take three or four days while the cases continue to go up like... Sweet mother of Lord, what is wrong? It just... Oh, 1850-715-996. On Twitter, someone calling themselves Paul Marx with a U says, please remember those of us who have family in Dublin. And we do. And many of us have friends in Dublin and relations in Dublin and would absolutely agree with you there. But sometimes the decisions in relation to this pandemic have to be made with no emotional ties at all. Stuart Nielsen, hi Stuart, says uh, Dublin, Loud, Leitrim, Waterford, Offaly, Limerick, Kildare, Longford and Ireland as a whole are all in the new EU red zone quarantine level now. Government is stumbling heedlessly along into lockdown too. Well, as Dr. Nabarro was saying, we don't want to go into national lockdowns anymore. They're a very blunt instrument. They do huge economic damage. 
you want to try and minimise your lockdowns and try and work around it as best you can. But then if people would do what they're flipping well told, it might help. Pat says, hi PJ, could you ask that expert about Sweden? They didn't fully lock down, they don't recommend masks and they've no deaths in the past week. The stats on Sweden bear a little bit more careful reading than that, Pat. Is there any merit in actually having a controlled infection programme, says Morris, where healthy young people go get infected and stay until they manage to beat the virus? Not this self-isolated home situation, but a controlled quarantine environment. Eventually, enough people will develop immunity. Well, that's what happens. You can do that when you have a vaccine. You can do that when you have a vaccine. We cannot take risks. Join a program, say, to develop a vaccine is what young people could do. Volunteer to join the program to develop a vaccine. 1850-715-996. Dublin heading for part three, or zone three, level three, probably by midnight tomorrow night. What does that actually mean? I'll go through it briefly there in a couple of minutes, but we've lots more to do besides. Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Blackpool Shopping District. Thanking you for keeping local business going. Pure Cork. Pure local. Pure Blackpool. Cork's 96 this is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show, The Opinion Line, with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Now, the lads in the proc had their ears wide open this morning. They said that I mentioned the Debrons workers and they're having a rally, and then I go talking about the serious nature of the pandemic. I can tell you something, lads having been down there with them. There's better social distancing going on at the Debenhams workers strike and rally than is going on in many other places around town. I spent time with them yesterday. I spent time with them a couple of weeks ago. I give them an old bit of the horn or a solution thing went past them in the morning. They're doing better social distancing in all of their campaign than many others you could talk about. So have no worries in that regard. 1850-715-996 what Dublin could be about to enter level 3 and remember if we don't behave ourselves and if things get out of control here and we had 7 cases yesterday is it 7 or 9 we've had quite a number in the last couple of days in fact I think on tomorrow's programme I might do the numbers again uh, for Cork but level 3 would involve being banned from leaving the county for anything other than an essential journey. Do you remember when this started and you had to go, if you want to go two kilometres from home, you had to show it was an essential journey? Well, under level three, you cannot leave your county unless it's for an essential journey. Uh, Others from other counties could be prevented from entering County Dublin unless it's for work, education or essential purposes. Anybody living in Dublin will be asked to unless it's absolutely not possible for them to work from home. Uh, All places of worship, mass and services and all that, they have to move everything online again. Funerals and weddings cut back to 25 people. That's level three. Uh, And there's more besides that. Uh, There's more besides that. But level three is 
a considerable step up from level two. There's a far more detailed programme here in front of me. Gyms and leisure centres, for example, could stay open with protective measures for individual training only. There would be no matches or no events of any kind, with certain exceptions. Uh, There would be additional restrictions for indoor dining. All museums and libraries, etc., would be closed. Uh, Libraries would be called and collect. Uh, Wet bars... uh, well, the wet bars aren't opening in Dublin next week. Uh, mandatory face coverings pretty much everywhere. Op- hotels and guest houses open, but for residents only. Like, you won't be able to wander into a hotel and actually have a reservation. Uh, it's uh, Level 3 is a considerable step up, and it looks likely that Dublin will go into that, according to Sean Defoe, by tomorrow night. Kevin has been looking at this five-point, you know, this situation where... Neffet make a recommendation, then the civil servants talk about it, then the committee talks about it, then the cabinet talks about it, and then a decision might get made a few days later. Why can't it be as simple as Neffet says, cabinet discusses, and we do what we're told? Hi PJ, that doctor summed up the reality of where we're at. This is Dr. Nabarro. The tone of his voice portrays the seriousness of where we are, but he also explained in simple terms how to move together for the days and months ahead. Good to hear him. Thanks for that. We need to be frightened to fix it as best we can. Frank says by the time it gets through all the groups and subgroups, we probably will have a vaccine. Well, there's the point, Frank. We don't know. We think, we hope, we pray, even, those of us who do. But we don't know. Hi, PJ. This country can only blame our government for not locking down every airport and ferry port and stopping people coming in from the countries that had high volumes of COVID from day one. Hundreds of thousands of people were coming in. Our so-called government didn't give a hoot. They tell us wear masks, but that's not going to save us. The virus can enter through our eyes. So from day one, this government got it all wrong. Well, the eyes thing, yes, but generally it's nose and mouth. It's possible. It's possible through the eyes. It's recorded scientifically, but generally nose and mouth, which is why generally a mask helps. But as regards the ports and the ferries, and look, people told us it wasn't true, but the more people I talked to who went to West Cork and went to Kerry on their holidays or went down to their own place, their own caravan in West Cork or their own caravan in Kerry when they were able to, the number of people who've been telling me about camper vans within the registrations, they can't all be making it up. They certainly can't all be making it up. And I don't know, I know that there was talks about busloads of Yanks in Killarney well, or in other parts of Kerry not necessarily busloads of them but there was a few of them there few of them there and there was anecdotal at least notions of stories of people flying into Aldergrove Airport in Belfast or the airport in Derry and coming down through Northern Ireland where of course common travel area you didn't have to quarantine we're fairly sure that happened but look that's all behind us now we are where we are, that horrible saying goes. We should be listening to people like Dr. Navarro. And why we have to put all these layers of BS between Dr. Glynn and his team and the cabinet and us. Someone's need to explain that very, very quickly. Anyway, while all that's going on, very stark story, very stark headline on the front of the examiner today, Owen English, writing that there will be significant cuts to services as Cork City councillors tried to plug a €4 million euro hole 
in the city's finances caused by the pandemic. Street cleaning, footpath renewal, estate resurfacing, traffic calming measures, all facing cuts. Some public parks might be closed. Tidy Towns funding could be axed. There could even be a problem with mounting legal challenges to certain things. It's been a massive, massive hit of €4 million to the city's coffers. The cuts to the street cleaning budget, civic community site budget. For example, you know some of the services that you have out at the dump there, out in the, the the Link Road, they may have to stop, may have to stop collecting paint, solvents, dangerous substances from you. Massive cost. The eradication program for Japanese knotweed. We were talking about it on the program and no one knew what it was years ago. But Japanese knotweed is a major problem. They may have to cut the money for that. No money for dog fouling awareness. No money for keeping trees under control. This is a very, very serious situation in which the City Council finds itself. Mick, good morning to you. McNugent, uh, Councillor McNugent. Good morning. Yeah, you're surprised the media have it. Well, that's our job, dude. Of course, of course. <laughs> no, no, PJ. I suppose we were meeting yesterday evening. We've had a few meetings actually. We had three last week and one yesterday evening uh, of our finance and estimates committee. So there's been various um, options put to us. That's kind of a, still an ongoing process, um, PJ. But as you say, the general figure is fairly is fairly stark, you know, there's no getting away from that. It's four million. It's it's four million, yeah, and there's probably not a lot of options there to to plug those gaps. Um PJ, the various directorates inside, they've been looking at seventeen percent, twenty percent cuts around the various divisions in there. So um it's you know it's it's difficult financial situation and, and I think the point the point we were making over the summer, uh, PJ, is basically a call to the government to, I suppose, bail out local authorities. Um, even the situation with rates is uncertain at the moment, so they haven't responded to those calls yet. And if they don't, that's what we're left with, uh, PJ, at least four million uh, deficit in the in the council's budget for next year. You know, like it would be great if the government in Dublin just wrote a cheque and gave it to Anne Doherty and said, there you are, Anne, that's the money you're missing. But that's got to come from somewhere too. Absolutely. Um, I suppose we've made a point over the years about we need more funding for local, for local authorities, you know, but the situation with us in the city, and you mentioned some of the things there, so, you know, it's right across the whole service delivery of the council. Um, again, there's not a lot of options. Maybe raising the property tax is one option. That wouldn't be a very attractive option either. Um, there's been other things uh, mentioned. I know the finance people inside are looking to send up their, their estimates to the department fairly soon, PJ. So I think the parties are still meeting to see yeah. if there are the ways of raising it. But well, I, well, I know that you say up. it's in at the discussion phase at the moment. Mm. Uh, and it's good work by, by someone like Owen to, to get it out there and look at how bad it could be. But for example, yeah. one of the things that is listed in the examiner is a cut to the service of collection and disposal of abandoned cars. Now, in the midst of, of a joyriding resurgence, shall we say, in parts of the city, like you want to find a better way to get that money back. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, look, and we get those every so often, you know, we get those things with cars abandoned here and there, and you'd be on to the guards, you'd be on to council to get them removed. So there's kind of those small things that would hurt. And I think the other thing that would be of interest to us, too, PJ, which we'd be keen to protect, would be around housing maintenance and housing in general um, in the council. At the moment, there's a there's proposed uh, cost to housing maintenance. Now, the housing people inside are saying they can try and find ways to, to alleviate that, but there's still a figure of a cost. Um, and, you know, to be on your show every so often, people with outstanding um, maintenance issues... Uh, to try and get resolved. So any cost of housing maintenance would be, you know, yeah. would be very hard to swallow. Absolutely, for, for absolutely. Concerns, and, you know? and the restra- restoration of voids. And that has, I know from recent figures I saw that that's upscaled now, the restoration of voids, and that's, that needs to continue. Uh, yeah. Ken O'Flynn, Councillor Ken O'Flynn, has said that central government should provide an emergency fund. Would you go along with that? I would, I would, PJ. Um, as I said, even the executive inside are unsure like the council, even in terms of rates, could be twenty million plus down where it would have been um, last year. So obviously, a lot of businesses had a rates holidays and rates holiday, and that was fine too. But that isn't exactly. We're not sure what's happening there in terms of rates. So, like the rates will be about forty over forty percent of the city council's budget will come from rates. And as you were just talking previously about the pandemic, you know, we just don't know what's facing us. Um, in the time up to Christmas and even next year, you know. Hopefully we won't be going back to any lockdown and Cox seems to be doing okay. But certainly an emergency budget or a bailout from the central government for local authorities. Um, I think it's needed, PJ. I can't, you know, four million cuts to the council's budget. It's very hard to operate on that level of cuts. Yeah. No, and, you know, property tax. Sinn Féin... Sinn Féin's stance on property tax, you weren't always you weren't always inclined to be supportive. No, that's our policy, PJ. We we would um we would abolish it if we had the possibility in government. But now you've said you should government. put it up. Five minutes ago you said we should put it up a bit. No, I'm not advocating that, PJ, but it is it is an option that some councils um around around the state have done. Yeah. You know, they have put it up by five, ten or fifteen percent. Um, well, the, the, the law allows it a maximum of 15, isn't it? That's it, yeah. yeah. Whereas in previous years, when the situation was staff, we would look actually for a decrease, PJ. We would look to have a decrease in people's property tax. Um, last year, we, we, we leave that zero, and we look at that for this year. Though there doesn't seem to be any consensus at the council level about raising property tax at the moment. It is one of the few options that the council would have in terms of getting some income in, you know, but again... Put, you know, your people have a lot to do, deal with this year in terms of their jobs, in terms of the pandemic. Yeah. And putting up their property tax wouldn't exactly say that'd be that well received either, you know? Yeah. Like, there, there are very few easy ways to do this. Like I said before, while someone might agree with you on emergency funding or agree with Ken O'Flynn on emergency funding, that, that all sounds great in a soundbite. But at the end of the day, someone's got to pay for that too. You do, PJ. And look... The government have announced um, recent, I suppose, what we're calling it a winter stimulus or a plan where they're looking to be supporting various um, sections of society. I, I would think to be reasonable that they would look at local authorities and local councils. And to be fair, a lot of the councils, and Cox City Council included, was doing a lot during the early stages of the pandemic in terms of community response and in terms of helping people out. 
vulnerable people. So, um, you know, that comes at a cost, and that's only right. So, but then I think, you know, maybe that the government has to look at supporting local authorities who are facing these cutbacks, uh, PJ. Okay. You know, there's very little way other ways for the council. Yeah, someone's um, got to find to this money. four million. It's got to be found somewhere. Yeah. It's got to be found somewhere because otherwise we're going to be in trouble. Thanks very much. That's Sinn Féin councillor uh, Mick Nugent. Now, as I said, Own English has got that article in the Examiner this morning and Mick, oh, Mick was wondering, how did they get that? That's our job, fella. That's the job of people like Own English to do that. And again, this is a kind of a draft list of what could or could not, or might or might not be affected. You know, for example, security budget, 85,000 cut no security on public parks. Some parks might have to be closed. I was driving in this morning. I had read the examiner at home on the worktop as before I came in. And as I was coming in past the capital there in Pana, I noticed it's like the surface of the moon. It's been like the surface of the moon for quite a while. Like if they don't repair the streets, we'll be back to donkey and cart very soon. Where in 185715... 996. Lots of responses to Dr. Navarro and others. Where are we? Gary says, you don't want to cut the funding for Japanese knotweed. That stuff is lethal. It can break foundations of buildings over months. It's illegal to just try and get rid of yourself, for example. You need specialist removal. That's Gary in New Zealand. Yeah. When nobody else knew what Japanese knotweed was, Gary, we're talking about it on the opinion line. And you don't want that growing anywhere near your house. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Coming up at Midland, the right to die. Vicky Phelan has said now in a number of interviews that when her time comes, she wants the opportunity to end her life at her own terms, in her own country, at a time of her choosing, surrounded by those she loves. And she doesn't want that to be prohibited by law as it presently is. We'll be discussing that issue uh, later on this morning. Also, after 11 o'clock, we'll be popping down to visit the Debenhams workers. If I have to stay here until I'm 90 years of age, we will get it. They're there on 161 days now and we'll catch up with some of the Vita Cortex people who were there with them this morning to mark this very significant day. That is all to come. Also looking to check up on vaccines. I spoke to Dr. David Navarro about the vaccine research and he said to me, look, there's no magic bullet here. There's no, there's nothing ready right now and it could be another year or more before there's something ready it could be 2022 before there's something we can all get it's just a reality with which we must live and uh, we'll get uh, a further update on that as well uh, before we finish today some of your comments held over i'll get to but we're very 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 busy on the opinion night this thursday morning i want to return to the issue of the leaving cert and the cao and the points and the places and the colleges and all of that. Uh, there's a, a teacher from Bruce College has written an, exa- an article in the Examiner uh, indicating that he thinks that a certain cohort of students were sacrificed in the name of educational equality. It mean he says the Oxford English Dictionary defines equality as the fact of being equal in rights, status, and opportunities. But the Department of Education has a different interpretation of what equality means. And David Lockery says, it appears that it's clear and obvious, he says, 
that a certain cohort of students, mostly the high-achieving ones, have been sacrificed in the name of educational equality. Now, Michal Landers is the principal of Bruce College. Michal, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Do you stand over the comments of your English teacher? Uh, I stand over his right to express his opinion as a teacher uh, in uh, Bruce College, and I would certainly uh, be very much, uh, I would very much agree with much of what he said, yes. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Certainly since the recalculation algorithm came out and people were able to get their own grades out from the schools, certainly an awful lot of change was made uh, in the Department of Education and it does seem to have affected certain schools worse than others. Yeah, I, I think the word you used, recalculation, is most appropriate because, you know, from mid-March uh, we went from closing schools to a point where exams were postponed and cancelled and we as a school supported that and went along with the calculated grades process. The biggest issue for us as a school and for our students is that we were asked to produce a profile of results in line with our three-year average um, in each of the subjects and our teachers did that and as David Lockery said in his um, article we, we, we did it to the letter of the law exactly as we were asked to do. Um, 70% of the students, leaving cert students in Bruce College this year had at least one or more grades um, reduced. Now, what ended up happening is in higher grades in subjects, there was grade inflation, a considerable increase in grades. And in our school, not the calculated grades, but in our school relative to our three-year average, there was deflation. So there was a massive um, swing. Can I just for a second, uh, yeah. uh, Mimi Hall, because I haven't had an opportunity to ask a, a teacher or a principal this uh-huh. uh, over the last few months. So, yeah. so when you sat down with John Murphy, sixth year student, any John Murphy at all, uh-huh. and you wanted to calculate grades for John Murphy to send up to the Department of Education, what, how, did, how did you go about that? Well, I didn't, uh, yeah. but my teachers had to go about it on, on, on a very... Um, formulated way that the department sent out to us. So the teachers had to base it on the grades they had achieved in the school and they had to base it on what their own opinion was based on the work that they had collected. And our teachers and our school would give students a fair amount of exams and assessment to help them and to give them honest and critical feedback. I mean, I think that's very important and I think most teachers in most schools would do that. So, so, But there was a straitjacketing in all of this. We had to rate students within the class uh, and we had to rank them within that. And every single student had to have a different score. So they were ranked out of a thousand and that had to be submitted to the department. And the department then changed the rules of all of this, as you know, due to what happened in the UK. And this was done without any consultation with us or any other school that I'm aware of. And grades were changed. And that was the, they were the final grades. They were the finalised grades given to our students. And the profile of the average grades in Bruce College was brought down relative to our three-year average when the rest of the country went up. A massive swing. So, you know, we are all for fairness and equality. I, I, I have been preaching for a long time that the point system is crazy and it needs to be changed. We're not for it. I think some people think private independent schools like us thrive in it. We don't. We want everybody to have you know, fair play and fair access. But it seems to me that a lot of our high-achieving students, and not just in our school, but many other schools across the country, 
um, where there's maybe a silence from some school principals and other private schools about it. But anecdotally, I'm hearing lots of stories of students who were really disappointed relative to how they were performing and the calculated grades that were given by their own teachers, who were the, who were the people that the department said we trust. Yeah, there were other schools then, Michal, public schools as opposed to private ones, where they were very pleasantly surprised by the results that came back in the calculated system. So, like, it's it's a swings and roundabouts thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, PJ, I think in fairness, uh, if you were sitting in my seat for the last week and a half or anybody else, and you heard what um, I had to hear from our students and our parents. And the disappointment, and this isn't disappointment about not necessarily getting the course that you want because the points went up and you did your best effort and and the results reflected that. This is disappointment at being hard done by a system that pulled our grades down, pulled our grades massively down compared to a national average that went up. In fact, from our analysis of the data, the department should have been doing the opposite. They should have been pulling them up because our teachers were so honest and how they submitted their calculated grades. And what we don't know and what we don't have is what percentage of students across other schools, I know they talk about grades, but across other schools, what proportion of students were reduced in terms of the uh, profile of the results over the last three years. So the department, you see, changed the rules midway. And I'm delighted for every student that got their courses. And there are many students in Bruce College that um, received their courses, but we had 70% um, downgraded. And 70%? You know, 70% of our students were downgraded. I mean, we had situations where uh, we had subjects, for example, accounting. Um, you know, there was a 43% increase in H1s and H2s this year compared to 2019. Bruce College we had 26% less H1s and H2s this year compared to our three-year average and probably a greater deficit compared to just last year by itself. Now, um, You know, music, uh, nationally, H1s and H2s up 30.2%. In Bruce College, we were 13% down on our three-year average. I mean, there hasn't been a student that's achieved less than an H3 in music in our school in, in three years, and this year 11% were H4s. Now, you know, the, the fairness of it is, is coming down to the critical thing that's going to be a rod that's going to come back and whip us next year. There's been massive increases in high grades nationally. This is feeding into higher points, and it's not because of schools like Bruce College, where we're often the whipping boys for the high points and the inflated points that are going in. Um, and these, this is going to stay this way next year. And it's going to go back and hit, you know, every student in the country next year in terms of the points they're going to have to achieve. And, you know, it's my firm belief, PJ, we have to change the point system. We yeah. have to take well, we've been saying that. This. We've been saying that since I was a child. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Since I did my leaving cert, people are complaining about the point system. And I, I did it when you got five for an A and four for a B. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, back in those days. And that's not a million years ago either. Uh, but to be honest, yeah, the yeah. CAO hasn't changed much. I mean, the very simple suggestion that could be done is there should be a critical attainment. For example, you take medicine, for example, the points are gone crazy in it. But maybe it should be that any student that achieves maybe 510 or 520 points or higher and has achieved their minimum entry requirements in science and maths goes into a random selection for high points courses like 
medicine, like dentistry, like pharmacy, and then they go back to the normal quota system for their lower preferences. That would take massive heat out of it. And that is possible, and that is doable. Yeah. Uh, and I just, for the life of me, can't see why we won't change. If that was done this year, uh, you know, everybody would have been on a level playing field. But the government effectively, the Department of Education, have inflated the grades, and you can't just prime it up and take it out. It's in now, and it's going to be there next year when there's thousands of other students uh, reapplying or transferring from courses. It's going to keep those points up. Now, I've listened to people like yourself from one college and another programmes. You'd peep, there's a, is it the Institute of Education in Dublin is another similar yeah. type college. I get a sense that you and others in your sector, shall we say, Hall, think you were targeted to be brought in line. Uh, that's an assumption maybe some people can make. Um, and once uh, we have all the facts. Once we have the algorithm that was used by the Department of Education, uh, we will give that to people that will analyse that and will come back with the facts. Uh, so there was an algorithm used. And, and as you and many of your listeners will know, these kind of things can have a bias in them or they can end up showing a bias in how they were put in. The question I have is, if a, an algorithm was used it must have been tested. And if it was tested, then it would have been clear to those that put this in place that students in high-achieving classes or schools were going to be at a distinct disadvantage. And it's, it's stark and it's quite big in our school. It would be sort of like, you know, if the Cork County football team had to have a quota of players from every club in the country uh, and, and, and only pick a certain amount and use a, a, a standardization and a ranking system like that, uh, uh, what kind of county team would we have? That they could only take a certain number of players from maybe a club like Nemo and then they'd have to go somewhere else. Yeah. So in a sense, there's a bit of that going on. And that is not a fair system. That yeah. is not a system that's going to deliver excellence in third level and it's going to give people due reward for yeah. hard work. So there is a little bit of a penalty here yeah. For people who've invested, and, and by the way, PJ, the, the, the students and the parents of students, teachers, nurses, doctors, small self-employed uh, business uh, owners, um, you know, these are the kind of people that are sending their children to Bruce College. Yeah. They're not multi-millionaires. They make sacrifices for their kids La and they should yeah. be treated fairly. Lastly and briefly, we already hear of one case gone to the High Court with regards to this algorithm. Do you think we'll see others and some of them coming from your sector? Um, I have no doubt there will be cases taken. Um, but for us, we, what we want and what we would prefer is fairness and justice and, and some sort of consideration and some response from um, the department uh, and some commitment as to what the leading cert exams are going to be like next year. Because one thing is for sure, this can never happen again. This is this is very, very unfair. And it's not because of my opinion. It's because I am looking at data in front of me here that beggars belief. OK, leave it there for today. Thank you very much, Michal Landers, Principal of Bruce College, up the road from us here, uh, the north side of the city. And look at the stats. Look at the stats. And you have to ask the question, did they, did someone decide? Did somebody decide? Well, we're going to give a little a little slap now to all them posh colleges. Did someone decide that? I'm not saying they did. 
would it smell a bit like the dead? 1850-715-996. For 20 minutes of the best music mix. Non-stop. And everything Cork. On Cork's 96FM. Check out new music all this week from the likes of Joel Corey and Cork band True Tides. We hear from the stars. Here's Gaga. I love you. Stay safe. And I might sound like a broken record, but wear a mask. Did you know Ed Sheeran? Not a big fan of TV. You know, I'm not a big TV watcher. I kind of like, if it's on, I watch it. On air, online, and on your smart speaker. And Tobin. Weekdays from midday. With the White Rabbit Bar and Barbecue. A brand new look with the same great food and service. See whiterabbit.ie. Corks 96 FM. This is Corks Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Corks 96FM. Imagine that you have a terminal illness. And imagine that you know your time is limited. It could be a year, it could be three years, at best, it could be five years, maybe. And you know that the end will be hard, hard, painful and agonizing. And you know that there is a science out there to allow you to choose when that end comes, to allow you to do it with the help of those around you who love you, and that they will face no consequences for helping you to do that, for allowing you to go gently. Imagine that for a second. Put yourself in Vicky Phelan's shoes. Vicky, good morning to you. Hi, PJ. I watched your interview with uh, with Kira, the big interview on Virgin Media, and I watched your interview with Joe Duffy uh, for The Meaning of Life. And as you know, I've been backing what you say on, on Twitter. I cannot disagree with you, but there's a bill before the doll now. Gino Kelly, Gino Kelly has brought it in. You want people to support that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, this bill is very... Um rigid, as in, you know, it, it's not a broad bill that, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of commentary online where people kind of say, oh, this is going to, you know, coerce elderly people or vulnerable people into, um, uh, you know, getting kind of you know, rid of them or emptying the nursing homes. That's not the case at all. This bill literally is only applying to a very small cohort of patients. And, and those patients are terminally ill patients, so you have to have a, a terminal illness that is, um, you know, guaranteed by, you know, two different medical practitioners. So, you know, you have to have that in writing. The medical practitioners cannot be related to the person who is applying for this assisted dying um, in any shape or form. Uh, the person who wants to uh, end their life uh, in this way has to be assessed as to their mental capacity. So it's not as if, uh, you know, a power of attorney could go in and do that on behalf of somebody who doesn't, is not compass mental. So this is all, you know, there's a lot of safeguards in place for this particular bill. And it's a choice, PJ. That's the bit, I suppose, that I'm trying to kind of, uh, you know, reiterate every time I do an interview. This is just to allow people who, like me who want it to be given the choice to do this. This is not compulsory. This is not for all terminal uh, patients. Some terminal patients don't want to go down this road. And I totally accept that. And I accept that there are people with religious beliefs who, who don't agree with this. And I, I honestly, I, I totally accept that. But all I would ask is, you know, don't try to impose your beliefs on people like me who want to choose this for themselves. You know, you don't have to choose it if, if that's not what you want to do and you want to end your life in the normal way. But don't try and, you know, make that decision for me. 
one of the arguments that's put up against it, Vicky, is that apart from the slippery slope argument, which, like you say, mm. you could put those restrictions into a bill, is the argument that we now have a very, very high level of palliative care in this country to give people, as they say, an easy death. Palliative care in this country is excellent. And actually, you know, the, the, the hospice that I will probably end up in myself, um, uh, Milford Hospice here in Limerick, is one of the best palliative care facilities in the country. And I've been there. I've, I've visited Ruth, actually, when she was down there, and they are absolutely fantastic. And I have absolutely nothing against palliative care. That's probably where I'll end up, to be honest, PJ. Do you know what I mean? I do want to end up in a palliative care facility myself. All I'm asking for is to be allowed to, you know, in my death, I suppose, you know, in the last few days, because, you know, what happens, you know, when somebody's dying, um, people will have seen this themselves, and I've had people contact me to say, yeah, you know, I still have that memory of my mother or my father, you know, and that it's called the death rattle, you know, that sound that people make when they're in their last two or three days of, of life. It's horrific. I mean, I remember the first time I heard it, I, 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 I was horrified. I didn't know what it was, and I couldn't get the sound out of my head for And that was, you know, an elderly relative who was dying, you know, I don't want that for my children. Um, you know, um, the other thing, you know, that people, you know, say to me is, you know, you would lose control of your bowels and your bladder, uh, you know, when you're coming near the end. Um, some people get delirium, you know, it occurs in, in between 50 to 90 percent of patients where, you know, patients get hallucinations or get very agitated and restless. And all I'm asking for PJ is, not to have to go through that, yes. you know. And I'm talking about a couple of days before that happens. That's it. And are you talking about something... That's too much. You're talking about a right to be able to say to your doctors, OK, can we do this on Friday? Exactly. Is that, is know, that as simple as that? It is. And I'm not talking about this Friday, you know, PJ, I'm talking about when I'm at the stage. I know that, Vicky, of course. I know You that. know, I, 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 I always like to say that to people, you know, I, I think people kind of have the impression that I want to die. I do not want to die, PJ. I, God, I, I think anybody who's ever listened you know, to you speak knows that, Vicky. You know, I've, I've, I, you know, I'm fighting to stay here with the last two and a half years, but the end is going to come. You know, I'm under no illusion unless a cancer for uh, a cure for cervical cancer comes within the next, you know, year, really. Um, you know, this is the way it's going to happen um, for me, unfortunately. And I have young children to think about, um, and I don't want that for them. I, I want to be able to, you know, just you know, go a little bit sooner than you know, waiting and lingering with that horrible sound for my children, really, you know, so that they don't have that memory of me dying. Yeah. Gino has the bill going through the dial. I've spoken to Gino on this program before. It was also mm. introduced by the previous Minister John Halligan and Tom Curran I spoke to many times about this this is something that there's a lot of fear in Ireland about introducing something like this how would you address that fear in people who have it? I suppose you know the fear is generally what I can see is um, you know there's two camps there's the religious camp you know and I I actually understand that you know I come from a a family where my grandmother was the parish priest housekeeper, so like religion was a huge part in, in, in my family growing up. So I totally accept that people have religious beliefs um, and I'm not, I would never try and change those people's uh, beliefs. That's what they believe. But all I'd ask those people is to, you know, let me make my decisions about my body. I mean, I've made all the decisions about my health care uh, for the last, you know, six years, really, of, of my cancer, you know. Um, you know, if I hadn't chosen, uh, you know, to go on Pembro and insisted on going on it, I wouldn't be here, PJ. Like I've made those decisions about my body and about my health care 
during my life. And, and the way I look at it is I should be allowed to be, make that decision about the circumstances of my death. That's all I'm asking. You know, I'm not asking for this for everybody. I'm asking for this for people like me who want to choose it. Um, but, you know, I do understand that there are reservations. The other camp then are people who are worried about this being abused and, uh, you know, for vulnerable populations or elderly people, you know, trying to clear out nursing homes. I totally understand that. This bill does not apply to that cohort. This bill is only applicable to terminally ill patients who have their uh, mental capacity to sign off that they want to do this, you know, so this does not apply. Um, I, I know that people will say, but what if, you know, down the line, you know, we, you, can't, you can't do the what if, you know, yeah. I mean, you're preventing people then uh, who need it to use it if, if you go against this bill. Yeah. Finally, before I let you go, how are you anyway? I'm good, PJ, yeah, I'm good now at the moment, thank God. Um, all well, uh, you know, I'm taking it easy, I suppose, over the lockdown, I've tried to prioritise my health. Um, one of the things I was probably doing too much, really, before lockdown, so that was a good thing for me to kind of slow down a bit. Um, so, yeah. I, I There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, I'm good at the moment. Good, good, and long may that continue, Vicky. It's always a pleasure to have you on the opinion line. That's Vicky Phelan, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Thank you. How, how do you feel about that? I'm sorry, I I cannot be neutral on this. I know sometimes you're supposed to be. I can't. I honestly can't be neutral on this. I can't see that single thing wrong with what she wants. I have seen friends. And relatives die horrible death. Their end. There's no easy way to go. There's no easy way to go. And if you've only got a week or two left, and they're saying to you, Vicky, PJ, Tom, John, two weeks is as much as we have. We can do no more for you. We'll make it comfortable. We'll make it easy. What's wrong with saying, well, can we do it Friday? 1850-715-996. Where are we with vaccines? Dr. Nabarro touched upon it earlier on. Let's 
get a bit more detail on what is happening in the search for a COVID-19 vaccine. Next. Access all areas on Cork's 96 FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Day of the Straws is an evocative digital work created by the artist Mary Brett in collaboration with the writer Katie Holly. There's a special screening of it at Sirius Arts Centre on Culture Night Friday 18th of September from 5 to 7pm and it's available the following day on the Sirius YouTube channel. Access all areas. Songwriter and producer Gemma Dunleavy may have captured your attention through her previous collaborations with Marley and Swing Thing, but the Dubliner has been busy making a name for herself with her debut EP, Up the Flats. Gemma comes to Cork to play a show at the Kino on Washington Street on Saturday, September 25th. Access All Areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. With Culture Night Cork City. Connect through culture for one day only on Friday, September 18th. See culturenightcork.ie. On Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 9696. On Cork's 96 FM. So as I said earlier this morning, Dr. David Navarro from the World Health Organization spoke to me about where we're going with vaccines. And let's get a, a more in-depth look at it. I'm joined by Professor Kingston Mills from Trinity College. Uh, Kingston, good morning and thank you for taking my call. Good morning. Talk to me about the vaccine situation. Listening to Dr. Navarro, he said there, there seems to be about seven at the moment offering some hope worldwide. I'd actually be more optimistic than that. Um, uh, there are um, 40 vaccines that are in clinical trials. That means that they're actually being tested in people right now. There's another 92, um, at least, in preclinical development. That means they haven't yet gone into the uh, clinic, but they're being tested in, 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 in animal models. Um, so the numbers is the, uh, uh, it's unprecedented in terms of the possibilities. That's not to say that any or all of those will work. And we have to wait to the results of phase three trials. And there are nine vaccines currently in phase three. Phase three is where you test in the population yeah. whether it's going to be effective or not. And the results of the first results of those will be coming in a, in a couple of months. And so we will know in a couple of months if the first w- ones will work or not. And then they have to be also evaluated for safety. So it's no good just working if there's some safety issue, it can't be licensed. So there's two key milestones that they need to get across. One is to show that it works, and second, that it's safe before it could be licensed. Now, the Russians uh, are at an advanced stage with the vaccine. The Chinese have Mm -hmm. immunised a couple of hundred thousand soldiers. Pfizer's reckon they'll have something ready by year end. And only the other day, Leo Varadkar was saying he's optimistic, and I suppose he's a doctor, so he knows the places to read his news. Yep. Who's right? I mean, will we eventually... Can you think... Are we saying a year? Are we saying 2022 before there's something we can get wholesale? Okay, so um, first of all, the Russian and the Chinese situation, they've actually licensed vaccines already, approved them for use. Uh, 
But these vaccines haven't been actually proven to be effective in phase three trials. So they went ahead and licensed them without waiting for phase three data, which would be never happen in Europe or the US because the regulatory agencies just simply don't permit it. And it's correct that they sh- shouldn't permit it. So that was premature licensing these vaccines in advance of extensive safety data or efficacy data. We don't know yet whether they work or not. Um, the timelines will very much depend on the outcome of the phase three trials. Yeah. If it looks like they're working, um, and if they're working very effectively, for example, the, the, the trials might even need to be completed because yeah. what happens is you're building up data through the trial, and if, it, if you have certain individuals that are vaccinated with the vaccine, others individuals who get a placebo, and if, if it looks like there's a vastly more people infected that get the placebo versus the vaccine, then you can break the code, if you like, on, yeah. the, on the trial and you can get early data. Yeah. If you look at the Chinese model in particular, the one that, where they've, they've injected a couple of hundred thousand soldiers, right? that's a big that's a big sample like if 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 all those results are good by december that's very promising, isn't it? Yeah, the trouble with that, though, is that it's not a trial. So there's no placebo in it. What they're doing is they're going out and vaccinating, as you say, 100,000 people, but there's not another 100,000 that are getting a placebo. So you can't tell whether the vaccine is what has actually prevented the infection, if, it, if the infection is prevented. So, so that's not actually going to tell us anything about whether that vaccine really works or not. Well, it may tell us, I mean, if there's no cases in those that get it, then you'd be very optimistic that it is working, but you can't put a percentage on the efficacy. And you can't say that that fa- vaccine is 70 or 60 or 50 percent effective whereas in a, in a phase three trial what you're doing is you're comparing an, a, a vaccine versus a placebo so you can work out a percentage and then you can say that that's going to generate herd immunity because it's over 70 percent effective so so the, the the chinese and the russian um, um um vaccines that are in approval are going to tell something but not a great deal yeah you, you mentioned the term there that's bandied about a lot herd immunity we, we know how in theory it works the science of it but we do need, do we not, Professor, some kind of working vaccine before we can go for herd immunity safely? Exactly. So people have said that, um, you know, we might get herd immunity through lots of people in the community getting infected. Well, right now, the estimates are that only around 2% of people in Ireland have been infected and recovered, and they're probably immune now. But, you know, it's, in order to get herd immunity, you need 70%. So we're a huge way short of that. So the only way really realistic it can, can be done with, with an effective vaccine. People cite but, Sweden as an example of what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, Sweden went for the idea, although they didn't, you know, go for it fully that that they weren't going to impose lockdown or the restrictions that we did or the most of the rest of Europe did and that lots of people were going to get infected but if you look there even in Sweden the numbers that have got infected are nowhere near enough to to, um, to get herd immunity you know the, the consequences of going for herd immunity through natural infection is that a significant more greater number of people will die than than already have died in the countries that go for it. So it's simply not on to go for herd immunity through through natural infection. So really, the only way this can be done is through an effective vaccine. That's why we're you know we're putting all our, our weight really on one of these vaccines, one of the, the 40 that are currently in the clinic, one of them working. Um, and maybe that some will work, and it may be that some will work, um, you know, not as effectively as we'd like. For example, if, if, if a vaccine protected 50% of people, that would be good, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be enough to generate herd immunity. It would protect a significant number of people from dying from COVID-19, that's for sure, and it would be a great uh, to have that. But we, what we'd really like is one that would be over 70% effective, so we would get herd immunity. Something that was also very exciting a couple of months ago when we read about it was BCG, which is an old vaccine been around forever. There was research going on 
Professor, I think in Australia, uh, of yeah. thousands of people, giving them a BCG booster and see how they fare out. Any word on that? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of um, uh, hype about this a couple of months ago. Um, um, and there is some some old data suggesting um, that people who have a BCG vaccine are less likely to get infected with unrelated pathogens, even things like measles. And this is to do with, with what we call innate immunity. It's a sort of a non-specific type of immunity that the BCG confers. Yeah. But it doesn't confer immunity at the level that a, a, a real vaccine does. This is non-specific immunity. Yeah. Well, could it give us resistance if we got a booster? Yeah, it would example. give a certain number of people potentially resistance, but really in terms of protecting the, the community as a whole through herd immunity, it's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, I have heard no data from any of the clinics trials yet they're still ongoing there's a few not just in australia there's one in in, in france and and i think the netherlands um where they've vaccinated a large number of people but the the, the, the trouble with with these vaccines uh, studies a lot of them are not placebo controlled and it's back to the, the old problem so you're going to find it hard to yeah. to um get an estimate of whether they do really work or you not you have to do your stats properly yeah. as it were yeah finally um celine makes a point on on whatsapp he said or she says well we have a flu vaccine but Apparently, it's not very reliable, and we have to get new ones every couple of years yeah. because flu bugs evolve. Like, yeah. how do we know this won't happen with COVID? What we know so far from the um, sequences of the virus that have come through is there's a, there's a small amount of variation, but it's nothing like what we've seen with flu in the past. So it's not the same problem that flu presents, and that flu varies every year, so you need to have a new vaccine each year. Um, with uh, COVID-19, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, doesn't really mutate to anything like the extent that flu does. So that's, at the moment, not considered to be a big issue. Finally, and briefly... I know that people like your good self and others, you prefer dealing science and data and stats and facts. But in your opinion, Professor Mills, would you be looking, taking everything broadly into account that's in front of you? Are you optimistic? I'm optimistic from the point of view of the vaccine, yes, because there's so many options here that I'm optimistic that one of them will work, or more even. Um, I'm particularly optimistic about an old-fashioned approach that um, a company in in France and some of the Chinese companies are using, which is called the inactivated virus vaccine approach. Um, and I think even though it is old-fashioned, I think it's probably got the best chance of working. The issue is, is the production of the virus is problematic, so it means that you're going to get not be able to produce hundreds of millions of doses of it straight away. Some of the modern vaccines, it's easier to produce, but they're unproven and we don't know yet if they work or not. Okay, we'll probably catch up again in the future. Thank you very much. That's Professor Kingston Mills, Professor of Experimental Immunology uh, in Trinity College. 1850 It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we just must hope that happen it will. 1850-715-996. You will have heard me speak many times on this show about Dr. Andrew Wakefield. You may even have heard me speak on the show to Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Um, his research into autism and vaccines has now been discredited, discredited and disproven. And Dr. Andrew Wakefield is, if you want, an outcast um, a new book has now been written about him. The last time he was on the show, by the way, he hung up when he was questioned. But uh, Brian Deere is an investigative journalist who has been looking into Andrew Wakefield pretty much since Andrew Wakefield emerged on the scene. And he's written a book now called The Doctor Who Fooled the World. 
Ryan Deere, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. I'm not going to hang up, I promise you. <laughs> now, look, I've spoken to Dr. Wakefield on the programme. He stands over his research to this day. He still insists that he was right. He's perfectly entitled to do that. But rather than look at the 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 research as, as a scientific thing, when did you first start looking into his work? Well, uh, the first it's interesting because the first uh, clue that I got that something was very seriously wrong was as a result of a, a trip to Cork I made. Um, and back in way back in 1996, I went out to meet a mother who'd won a, an enormous settlement over an earlier vaccine, the diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. And so I, I interviewed her just outside uh, the city of Cork, uh, a wonderful place, and we had a great time. I stayed at her home for a few nights. Uh, but when I when I then came upon Wakefield's original paper, I was still looking into this. DTP story. Yeah. So I suppose when, we should probably bring it into context for some listeners who mightn't be familiar. Dr. Wayfield's claim was that he found a link between the MMR vaccine and the development of autism. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, a paper was published by him and, uh, and others who didn't contribute much to it, but essentially a paper by him was published in February 1998. And what he claimed was, was that uh, at a children's bowel clinic at a London hospital, a series of families had turned up, turned up. The parents of 12 children had turned up and said, my child was developing perfectly normally and received their MMR vaccine and within 14 days was showing the first signs of autism. Uh, and that's a pretty striking thing because essentially it, it created a huge health scare because at face value, it appeared to be potentially, I say potentially, the first snapshot of a hidden epidemic possibly of injuries caused to children by the MMR vaccine. That was the, that was the reason why it got so much attention. And the reason why I started looking at it was, I mean, the simple reason, most obvious reason was I was asked to do it by my editors who just said, look into this when it became a huge story. They didn't know what we should do, but they just said, start looking at this. But to go back to the, the court connection, what happened was that I was actually at a doctor's home talking to them about the, the DTP vaccine when Wakefield's paper was published. And I noticed with a bit of research that the, the 14 days that he'd cited was exactly the same as a piece of research that had been done on the DTP vaccine from another London hospital, three and a half miles away from his one, back in the 1970s. And the thing was, I knew enough from my research on DTP to know they were totally different vaccines. And the fact that in both cases you had this situation where there was, there was this connection of 14 days, I just thought was absolutely incredible. I thought basically what they'd done with MMR was to copy the previous scare over DTP and move it over to a new vaccine. And that just wasn't credible because the, the technologies of the two vaccines are so different. You, mm -hmm. just, you just wouldn't get the same results. Now, what did he do that caused him to be disbarred and cast into the wilderness when it was found out. What did he do? Well, the first thing was that what he didn't disclose when he, he made this great appeal to the world, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't remember this, long time ago now, 1998, when we're all much younger and all getting more sex and having a great time in our lives, you know, years and years ago, um, he, he essentially 
presented himself as a as a crusading campaigner for children with a moral conscience to bring this to the public attention. And the first thing we discovered that went to the General Medical Council was that Two years before that paper, he'd been hired by a firm of lawyers who were hoping to get a lawsuit going, based on the old DTP thing, hoping to get a lawsuit going, and they'd hired him to do this precise project, exactly the same project that appeared in The Lancet, uh, for them at, uh, at an enormous hourly rate of uh, salary. So we discovered that he'd been paid, so he had a massive conflict of interest. We discovered that the children in the study hadn't just turned up at the hospital, but they'd been sent to him by an anti-vaccine group in Britain, and uh, he'd then phoned around the GPs to ensure that the particular children that he wanted were sent to the hospital. So the parents, when they turned up and said it was the MMR doctor, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Because that was why they'd been brought there in the first place. So we found that out. And then as time went on, we found that, um, that he'd actually misrepresented the data. He was a, he was a doctor without patients. He, didn't, he, was, a, he was a laboratory uh, researcher at the hospital. Mm. Had no patients, no clinical. He had background. been a gastroenterologist, hadn't he? Well, he'd been a gastrointestinal surgeon, a trainee yeah. gastrointestinal surgeon earlier, but even then, that was only as a trainee. He'd then gone off to do to Canada, where he did research. So, so he then changed the clinician's diagnoses. Uh, to make it appear that what he discovered was a specific clinical syndrome. Because if you want to prove a vaccine case, basically what you have to do is to show a certain fingerprint of damage. You have to say, well, this is what this child or person has that that child or person doesn't have that makes me say that this person is vaccine damaged. So he then altered the data and he was then ultimately after a 217 day hearing by the General Medical Council which was longer than the trial of OJ Simpson, uh, he was then struck off the medical register on charges that his own counsel acknowledged to be fraud and also uh, four, uh, three, three further counts of dishonesty plus all sorts of ethical irregularities that I won't go into because they take too long. 92 pages of charges were actually read aloud at uh, the uh, General Medical Council hearing. There are still um, a number of people, and I speak, um, Brian, uh, as a parent uh, of a young man on the system, who, by the way, was vaccinated because I never had any faith in, in what I was reading from Dr. Wakefield. But there are still many, many people who will not vaccinate their children because of what he does. What would you say as the man who has read more about him and studied him more than anybody else? Well, is that you simply cannot believe that work and all of the campaigning and activity and agitation which has followed from it. You simply cannot believe it. And my heart goes out especially not, not just to parents who agonise before they vaccinate their children, but to those parents who have vaccinated their children and their child perhaps shows some developmental issue further down the road and the parents say to themselves, oh, I wish I hadn't vaccinated my child. If I hadn't vaccinated my child, maybe my child wouldn't have this issue. And my heart goes out to those people because that sense of, of, of un, unwarranted guilt makes them very vulnerable and sometimes has made them very bitter and, and moreover, angry. because there is no science to support it. Yeah, there is, there is no science to support it at all. The, the, it's not to say that, that there isn't out there somewhere, there may well be somebody who has autism, uh, who wouldn't have autism if they hadn't been vaccinated on a particular day with a particular vaccine in particular circumstances. But what we know is that they would be better protected by being vaccinated than but not being vaccinated. And uh, you know, all, all, 
all medical interventions that work, actually somebody out there will, will, will suffer as a result. We know that. I mean, even aspirin will, uh, can potentially kill you. So no one's saying there, there is no possibility, but we, there is no evidence that's come forward to make that link at all, uh, even in the 20 years and more that, uh, that have elapsed since that paper was published. And it's all told, the story is told in your new book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World. Uh, Brian Deere, thank you very much. Pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, and you. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. 1857-15996 is the number. The text to WhatsApp 083-396-9696. The email opinion at 96fm.ie. Breaking news, Daniel McConnell, who is the political editor of the Irish Examiner, has tweeted that Neffet is looking at moving Dublin to level three with additional restrictions. Now, is that additional restrictions on top of level three, a beginning as soon as possible? And that meeting is on at the moment of Neffet. And that seems to be what they want. They want Dublin to not just go to level three, but go to level three and a bit. Which, of course, you can do. All these are moving documents. So you can go to two and a bit of three, or three and a bit of four. So you can do that. So that's what they're asking. 1850 715 996. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Coming up this hour, we will be going uh, to speak with the Debenhams workers and speak with the Vita Cortex workers who have come to join them today at day 161 since they were told in an email a very impersonal email that they had lost their jobs but first of all before we do that let's do this i chose three places simon's place books upstairs and hodges figures because these are places that are important to me these add value to my life if they were gone the city would be devalued but my personal life would be devalued i would be the worse off for it so just to make that conscious decision that I'm going to try and help these businesses through the next phase so that when we all come out of it, which we will, they'll still be here. Uh, and, you know, the Joni Mitchell song, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. We don't want to be, I don't want us to be in, to, in that situation. And that's Tim Carey. He's an author and historian based in Dublin. And the three businesses he was talking about are all Dublin-based. But his adopt-a-shop, hashtag adopt-a-shop idea, has gone fairly lively on social media. Tim, good morning to you. Good morning. These would be places, I guess we all have them, places that would, are badly affected by the pandemic since day one, but have great residence in your life. And, and I think the idea behind your video and your tweet was we all have places like this. We do. Um, I mean, we all have places that mean something to us, that they're special, they partly define our lives, maybe in a kind of subconscious way. Um, they could be, you know, a favourite cafe, a bookshop, a second-hand record shop, um, a clothes shop. Um, and I think they're kind of places that, I suppose, by definition, are unique. You know, they're not parts of chains or large chains, but they're unique and they make Cork, Galway, Limerick, Longford, Dublin distinct and and unique. Um, so I just, you know, we're all facing this uh, huge issue of the pandemic. Uh, it is beyond any of our ability to control 
uh, a large part of what is going on. Um, and my concern was that, okay, I'm now a suburban worker. I used to work in a city centre, uh, but now I work from home. Yeah. The businesses that I loved in the city centre aren't getting my business. Um, and you multiply me by thousands and you wonder, are they going to be here when all this is over? Because it's going to end. Mm. But, you know, when it ends, are the things that we loved about the places that we lived and work going to be gone? Or are many of them going to be gone? So I just decided, you know, I've been in town a couple of times, you know, and I would make sure that I go to those places. But I just figured this isn't enough. You need to make a conscious effort every week or two. Go to the place that you value and spend your money and support them through this phase. Because if you don't, who else will? You make the very valid point like that thousands of people like yourself working from home, working in the suburbs. Okay, I'm still coming in and out to town and many more like me, but but thousands that would be in buying the cup of coffee and the cake in the coffee shop or going to the bookshop to get pick up, they're not coming in and and neither are the neither, neither have the tourists come in this yeah. summer. So a lot of places that closed in March and are trying to get going again the shutters will come down. It's inevitable the shutters will come down on some of them. And you're going to, you know, you're going to be there thinking, oh, that record shop, I love going to that record shop. It's not there anymore. I love going to that clothes shop. It's not there anymore. And it's to try, you know, this is basically, you know, altruism, but there's a lot of self-interest. This is what, you know, this is important to you. So you should make it your business to support it. And I know that there's a lot of, you know, support local. And I fully agree with that. But it's nearly also support the place that you're not near anymore, that you're not going to anymore. You know, not the place near your home, although you can do that as well. But think of the other places that are in where you worked or where you played sport or where you did, you know, X, Y and Z. Um, and like two of the, sh- the places that I pick, Simon's Place and Books Upstairs in Dublin, which visitors uh, would, would be familiar oh, with. I know it. I know it. Great little place. Yeah. Ah, fantastic. And it's, you know, it's been there for 40 years. It was the first, one of the first sort of international bookshops, Books Upstairs. Marx Brothers was the previous Simon's Place. So these have been going for decades. But they're running, and for the last number of months, at 50% capacity. Now, how long can a business like that continue? And, you know, unless people make that conscious effort to go in and spend their money, they're just not going to be there. And, you know, the place will be worse off for it. Um, it was, you know, I, this isn't a revolutionary idea. I think it just struck a chord with people yeah. because it's something that you, we can all do. Like, it's within our control. It's, we're not trying to save the world here. We're just trying to concentrate on a few places that we really value. Well, one, one cup of coffee and blueberry muffin at a time, you, you, you might say. The problem is, I guess, if there is one, in that while it's a super idea, uh, it, in your own native Dublin at the moment, they're in serious trouble. So to even think about doing something like that would be going against public health guidelines right now. Well, I'm not too sure going to a shop is, is against public health guidelines. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not. Um, and, you know, at the moment, you know, people are entitled to, to, to travel and to move around. And, to, you know, so that's, that's not against public health guidelines. I mean, obviously, if you're taking public transport, you know, your face coverings are, mm. you know. So, you know, Supporting a business isn't against public health guidelines. Um, you know, we're not in lockdown. Um, and, you know, even when Kildare was there, you know, shops remained open. And yeah. so, you know, this is still, you know, these are still viable uh, propositions for people to carry out uh, on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a basis that's yeah. acceptable to them. So wherever you are, you're saying to us, Tim, choose 
three businesses that you used to go to but don't go to and go back there? Yeah, because they are missing your business and they need you. And when you come back, they may not be there unless you support them now. All right. Thanks very much. That's Tim Carey. Adopt a shop. Just put in the hashtag. You'll find it on Twitter. It's It's a cool idea. I can't imagine the public health doctors being too happy with ideas like this. And you know what? That's why I brought it up with him. You are, of course, allowed to go into coffee shops and restaurants and bars, or some bars, and bookshops right now. And he's saying, maybe for example, let's choose just off the top of our head. Let's look at Waterstones. You might have been a regular visitor to Waterstones. Uh, You haven't been in Waterstones for months. Well, pop into town. Cycle in, drive in, get the bus in, whatever. And pop into Waterstones and buy a book. And in a fortnight's time, do it again and buy another one. Or go to a little place in the English market that you also always used to visit when you were in town. And go and visit there. It's a nice little idea. 1850-715-996. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. 161 days ago today was Holy Thursday, the 9th of April. And on that day, a thousand workers up and down the country got an email. They had been sent home when Debenhams, with all the other stores and supermarkets and outlets in the country, Debenhams closed its doors for lockdown. They were sent home with a reassurance that everything would be fine and we'll see you when we open. And on the 9th of April, they all got emails that their jobs were gone. From that day to this, the Debenhams workers have been on a picket line, refusing to allow the stock been taken from the store until such time as a deal is done on their redundancy. They've been offered just merely two weeks statutory redundancy from the state. There was an offer put on the table a couple of weeks ago and then quickly withdrawn. A very derisory offer, offer according to the workers and their union. Their union is mandate. The strike has been fully sanctioned from mandate by mandate from the start. And today, as I said, is day 161. And I went down yesterday uh, in advance of today and I spoke to Valerie, who been, we've been dealing with from the start, the shop steward, but to some of the others who've been there on the picket line for the last 161 days. Claire O'Leary. And how many years service, Claire? Ten years service. And you've been here since day one and coming into day 161. Did you ever think it would take that long? No, definitely not. I haven't been here as, as active as I'd want to be because I'm expecting, but the girls here have been unbelievable. They're here morning, noon and night. I never thought it would go on this long. When you went home the day lockdown was announced, what did you honestly think? I just thought COVID. You know, they're looking after us, they're protecting us. But never t- never dreamed that this would happen, that we'd be shut out, never to come back in again and work with all these fabulous people. And that's the hardest, I think. Yeah, like 10 years is, is a long service trip anywhere. There's people around you with 20 and 30. and Oh, I'm small compared to 30 and 40 years. I've, you know, I'm nothing compared to what they've done in Rochester's times and Debenham's times. It's just, it's unbelievable. It really is. 
Now the effort of the, the picketers here from day one, round the clock, seven days a week. Yeah, it's hard going. I mean, they're, far, they're away from their families. It's, the weather's going to get bad now as well. I mean, it has, to, it has to end. They have to put an end to it. Someone has to step in. The government has to step in. Something has to be done. Now the Taoiseach came down here a week or two ago and, and visited people. I think you were on the 150th day. And he stood the dial and he said they were being very badly treated. But has there been anything since? Action. I mean, it's easy. words are easy. I mean, you have to stand up, put something behind those words. You have to put it into action. You know, he has to. He has the power to, to finish this. He, he can contact the liquidator and he can try and try and put this to an end. So we'll see. I suppose time will only tell what he can, what he can do for us. The reason we're marking 161 days is that was how long it took the Vita Cortex workers and I, I said very early on in this this is like the new Vita Cortex the worst part is it could all have been stopped after Vita Cortex yeah absolutely if they brought in the the, the bill that's, that's waiting in the door to be passed it would would never have affected us you know it would have we'd all been protected so even if we can bring that in to protect future workers I mean it would be something for us Debenhams workers. Like you said, you're expecting. How yeah. far along are you? I had 30 weeks today. So. <laughs> <laughs> this might be the last day. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, well, I come pop in now and again. Yeah. So, you know, it's like I miss the girls and I miss the company. Yeah. Great bunch, do you know? Pamela Keating. And how long, Pamela, were you working? 33 years. Wow. <laughs> A lifer. A lifetime. My first job. My You've been ex roaches then? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I started when I came out of school and was there since. Literally your first job? Literally my first job. So take me back to the shock of Holy Thursday. Well, on Holy Thursday, I actually got a phone call from one of the girls who has 42 years service, and she said to me, did you open your email yet today? So I hadn't opened my email, and she just said, we're gone. So I opened it and just read the email. It wasn't even addressed to anybody. It was just, dear sir and madam, and read it, and I actually contacted Valerie, um, and she said, I'm just reading it now. And then we contacted around the country and people were just in total shock. When you've been around a workplace for 30 years, you tend to have a good notion of what's going on, even in the darkest corners. You never saw this coming. No, we didn't. We didn't see this coming. And, uh, you know, I was there when the, the takeover came between Roaches and Debenhams. I, it was through the media that we actually found out about that takeover. So we were always very aware. I was in the office side of it, dealt with some of the figures. We had a meeting month in, month out with our manager. He reassured us everything was fine. We had gotten a, actually a letter the previous week to say that everything was fine, that it was England went into administration and it had nothing to do with Ireland. So it, well, it then came as a shock. Now, this thing that was offered a couple of weeks ago, uh, a million euro put on the table on a Friday afternoon. Did you even sit down to calculate what that would have been worth to you for your 30 years? Yeah, so for 33 years I would have got 1,900 euros before tax. Before tax? Before tax. And everything deducted out of it for 33 years service. Which is why you're still here. Which is why we're still here. Yeah, it was a total insult. And in one way it actually made us much stronger because it made us very, very angry. And, I, you know, KPMG were very quick to take it off the table. But they actually did us a favour because we've gathered 
huge momentum now in this campaign and um, we're just going to keep going and keep going and keep going with it. For 147 days, they told us no, we could not get a penny, not one penny within the, the legal aspects of a liquidation that we would get nothing that worked. We were too far down the creditors list and then he was able to find a million on day 148. So maybe he'll find more millions. The numbers are that it would take, is it 10 million to give you the two plus two package agreed in 2016? Explain for people who wouldn't know what that two plus two package is. So in 2016, Debenhams entered the examinership and they actually employed Kieran Wallace and Andrew O'Leary from KPMG to take them through the administration, restructure the business, and they were actually involved in coming up with that redundancy package in 2016. So that would be two from the government and two to be paid by Debenhams. And that's where the two plus two is actually coming from. That is our agreement that we had reduced and reduced and reduced to. That was actually accepted in 2016. By all sides? By all sides. But now he is saying that it has no standing. On a personal level, how has it been? Tough, I imagine. It's been tough. It's been tough. We've been here in sunshine. We've been here in hail. We've had two storms. We're here. We're here 24 hours. I, you know, the different shifts, trying to sort everything out with pe- kids going back to school, people with kids going back to school. They now obviously, while they were working, they had babysitters. They now don't need those babysitters. So it's just, it's been hard. It's been very hard. Have you got despondent at any stage? Yes, we all get, we all do. You know, when we, when, when we heard the offer of, of the million euros, we, you know, we were hopeful at one stage that it would be more. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose the reality of it is, if KPMG had made some kind of a decent offer at the start, we may not be here, still here today, and he could get on with his liquidation, whereas he's now paying rent, security, insurance, electricity on all 11 stores, and he is now threatening with court action, which is an added cost. I'm sure if all that was to be added up, we would have probably settled for that figure. The reason I'm here today is because of the 161, which is significant because it was the the 161st day when the Vita Cortex workers walked out having reached an agreement. I remember talking to them about determination and sticking in there and sometimes it was through tears they said we're going nowhere. That's correct. They, they have actually supported us and um, they're here again today and they've come to all the rallies to support us and you know they've told us what they went through and just as everybody is saying, just stick it out, stick it out, stick it out. Your name? Orla Dowling. And how long are you here, Orla? Uh, it should have been 17 years in December. I started with Roaches in 2003. I came in as a part-time worker when I was doing college, and I stayed there ever since. And the shock of Easter week, what was that like? Oh uh, my God, it was like, is this for real? Is this uh, is this junk mail or what? It was just, it was totally unbelievable. Just to be told in an email that your job is gone and to refer to gov.ie for your statutory redundancy. It was a total slap in the face. No one, we didn't think that we'd be here for 161 days out passing Vita Cortex. Um, and we'll stay here as long as we need to. If it needs to be another 161 days, then bring it on. <laughs> now, you've been visited by the Taoiseach, and, and it seemed to have been quite a pleasant conversation, and he stood up afterwards in the doll and said you've been very badly treated. Have you heard anything back since? Um, well,
Well, no, I suppose that um, obviously they had their summer break and everything, so talks have uh, you know continued back on. But like to be honest, I'm I'm sick of I'm sick of words. I'm sick of talks. We want something done. Action is what we need now, and you know we're looking, we're calling on Monday, KPMG, and the government, you know, to you know help us out. Someone might say, Orla, look, this is an unprecedented situation. We've never lived through one of these things before. This pandemic has destroyed the economy, and unfortunately, some people suffer. Do you have any time for that argument? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, we've all, we all have our own struggles, you know. Unfortunately, we just lost our jobs during the COVID. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, we, we obviously need the sympathy too. Like, um, it's not just us. It, there's going to be many other companies down the road that are going to, you know, cut back on staff or, you know, colleague, our workers are going to be made redundant. Um, you know, so we just all have to pull together, basically. And, You're um, here for everybody, yes. Here for everybody. What's it been like personally? Obviously, the shock of losing the job, and then did you get despondent at all across the summer? Um, well, I felt like my my whole summer was consumed being on the picket, you know. Um, but you have to be here, like you, you know, we have to be here picketing. Um, I suppose some days I was very deflated, you know, tired, fed up and everything. But without my pick-a-pals as such, like, I don't think I could have gotten through it. With a great it. little gang here, isn't there? Oh, my God. Like, we're the best of friends. Like, sure, we all grew up with each other inside the store. Like, yeah. we, uh, people got married, people bought their first houses, had children. So, I mean, like, we're family. We're all sisters and brothers. I worked in Roaches as a teenager. It's yeah. a very long time ago now. But back then... They were a very united family of workers, and and it continued. Oh, absolutely, it did continue. I just think it's a, it's just the Cork people, like it's we're just honorary, like, and um, we all would we would stand beside each other, and you know we just united. And if we have to be here for longer, we will. We won't stand down. <laughs> 161 days. I spoke to you, Val, about 21 days in. And I floated the figure of 161. Do you ever think you'd get here? That day I nearly cried when you said that. I honestly didn't think we'd make 161. But we're here and it looks like it'll be a lot longer. What's the latest? You're the shop steward. What is? What are you hearing now? So there was a motion, uh, um, private members' motion went to the Doyle yesterday. The Taoiseach and Leo Varadka just cut it to bits. So it doesn't look as if it's going what to What was in that bill? So it was asking to bring in parts of the Duffy Cattle Bill, uh, the parts that would suit the employees to help them get, for us now to get our redundancy and for people that are going forward for their collective, they'd be able to get their collective redundancy. But Hall Martin keeps saying that they can't do it and it wouldn't be right and it would be costing the employers money, not employees money. So they're not thinking of us, they're only thinking of the employers and businesses again. No, last week, the week before... I keep playing the, the tape. Michal stood up and said the Debenham workers had been shabbily and badly treated. He came down here, he met you. How did you feel when he said that in the doll then? Well, I felt as if he wasn't here for us. He's also standing up saying that it's terrible for people that have to cocoon and that they, the whole of the country is suffering because of COVID. We haven't been able to cocoon. We have been out here 161 days. We haven't been able to stay with our families. And then he makes comments like that. That doesn't help anything. It's been a hard time for our families. You've had to give up a lot of family time over the last six months. Yes, I'm lucky that I suppose my children have moved out, but 
There is people here with young children and they have to drop them to school and come in straight away, run away to collect them and then come in after dinners. So everybody is, everybody is so busy trying to keep this up. But we're, get, we're getting stronger. Staff are getting stronger because staff are getting annoyed at the government now at this stage because they're not doing anything for us. And as I stand here, I see people coming up, raising some money for Marymount for the day that's in it and all that. I see people coming up wishing you well. That has continued. The support has been unbelievable and that's why we done the Marymount Hospice collection because we feel we had to give something back to thank people for their support. So this is our way of saying thank you. 161, I'm going to throw another number at you. 200, are you willing to do it? Yes, we are willing to do it. Everybody's willing to do it. I hope it doesn't come to that. But when you said about the 161 days, I really didn't think it would. But I do feel now it is going to hit 200 days. But we will get it. If I have to stay here until I'm 90 years of age, we will get it. That's the spirit, Valerie. Hi, how are you? <laughs> we just how, How's it been this morning? And a lot of people saying, look, you're having a rally, you're having a meeting. We're trying to social distance. I presume that you've been as careful as you've always been. We Yes, everybody with social distance. I, I shout at them every so often to make sure that they are. So they're afraid not to do it at this stage. But yes, everybody was being very careful this morning, especially with the extra cases now and everything. So we were being extra careful this morning. As you said there in the tape, this is a day you never thought you'd see. I know, I know. And you know what? The support of the amount of people, Beta Cortex people that came down here this morning, it was just amazing. And we, and even they can't believe that we are still here after 161 days. Yeah. Even they're shocked. Yeah, because on 161 days, they, they had a deal done, battered out, struck out. They've been at meetings day and night, and they eventually got their deal, and they walked out after 161 days. The only deal that was put on the table for you, you weren't going to take it anyway, and... It's gone now, so there could be a, another few weeks in this yet, Valerie. There could, there could be, and it's, it's up to the government now, really, PJ, to step in. They're yeah. the only people that can help us now. We have three ministers in Cork, Mion Martin, Michael McGrath, and Simon Coveney. Simon Coveney runs from us, you know, so they have to step up now. They actually have to do something. The unfortunate, no, no law has been broken here, and corporate law is intact. No law has been broken. This is the big problem. Yeah, exactly, and that's what we're, is kept being thrown at us, that there's no law broken, that they can walk away. But it's happened so often. They have to see that they have to stop this happening. There was Vita Cortex, there was Cleary's, and now there's us. And there'll be more after us unless they do something now to stop it, and we, they have to. Well, you mentioned Vita Cortex, and a man I haven't spoken to since the end of May 2012. Jim Power, how are you, Jim? How are you, PJ? Uh, we were there yeah. the day you walked out into the sun. That's right. And you're there this Big morning. With, it's a great day. You're there today with with the lads from from Debenhams, going Debenham. through what you went through. Yeah, it's hard to believe, uh, PJ. After all these years, um, you know, as you, as you, you, you probably done it yourself. But with the situation the girls are in, there and the fellas, we were keeping an eye on it, obviously, you know, but. Unfortunately, they, they haven't been getting enough publicity over this COVID thing. But as Valerie had said there a while ago, I mean, we have three top politicians in Cork. Surely be the guy they can put their heads together and try and some, start something out from. Yeah. The argument at the time, remember your own case, was that no law had been broken and that the Cortex owners had, had acted within the law. The law is the problem. It is, it is. Um, but like the, the Debenhams workers, they are kind of carrying, they're only expecting what people that left before them 
got the PGA. That's right. And it was the, it was the same situation with us. The, the company had closed the factory in Navin and Dublin, and all we were looking for was the same as what they got, which everybody thought was reasonable. And that's what the Debenham people are looking for as well now. And I mean, the, the offer they got there last week was a, a total disgrace. I was talking to one of the girls about it, and it, it was working out at something like one day for every year, year that they worked. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's... What's your message I, to them today, Jim? Well, the message today is stick together. You you can see that they're looking looking here against the small and PJ. They're they're a fierce kind of um, a crowd for sticking together, and they're always the oil. I mean, they're, they're showing brave faces here this morning on the line, PJ. But it has to be taking its toll on them. Yeah. I mean, like you know, like, I mean, they're they're, they're laughing and joking. They're they're trying to keep a brave face, but 161 days has to be taking a toll on them. Well, it took a toll on you guys, didn't it? Yeah. Well, it did. Yeah. I mean. It did. But, you know, having said that, PJ, I mean, you know, there's a lot of women involved this morning. I mean, as one of them said earlier on about when the kids went back to school, there was an extra problem they had. You know, and, and, like we were, and on top of everything else, we were, at least we were under a roof, PJ. Yes. They're, they're, they're open, they're under umbrellas in the rain. And from here on in, it's going to be getting colder and wetter. Yeah. So, as Valerie said earlier on, I mean, it's down to that we have three top politicians in Cork and it's about time they start to show on their face and yeah, standing, up, standing up for these people. I know that Cal is there, but we've lost him off the line. Um, his phone seems to have died. Is, yeah. is he there next to you, Jim? He is. Do you want to, do you want to have please, a few words on PJ? Please, yeah, please, yeah. Right, PJ. And, and fair play to the, the workers. But st- and st- just tell st- them, stay, stay there, there, Jim, PJ. as well. You, well yeah. Hang in there. Stay there as well. Get a yeah, phone yeah. because I tell you why now, we have a little treat for you and Cal as well when we're finished talking. Cal, hold, are you there, no, mate? Brother. Like one minute, I put you on to Cal there. Okay, okay. This is Cal O'Leary, and that's Jim Power, one of the Vita Cortex. PJ. How are you, boy? How are you? Did your phone die or something on you? That was very good. It did. It died Sorry about that. Not a bother. Not a bother. But you've come you've come down to be with the, 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 the Debenhams people on what was your red letter day? 161. Oh, oh, yeah. 161. So sad, PJ. Like, it, it, like this, this, this thing should never be happening. Like, you know, the sooner the somebody makes this legislation to bring this thing in. Like, it's, it's terrible. Like, like there are many people walking their way up along the line and then to be blown out of the water. Like, I, I see so sad from this morning, like, you know. Yeah. Valerie, would you do me a favour there? I will, of course. Would you give Cal your phone? Okay, and let him with Jim, and because and if there's a radio there, when she turned up, I I dug this out this morning because I, I remember speaking to Cal one time, and neither Cal nor Jim ever actually heard anything about their coming out after 161 days because it was a a big occasion. They were stuck in in the middle of it, but just to remember that day, and I think probably as a a little encouragement to the Debenhams workers, what I've done is I've gone back into the 96 FM news archives. To remember that day at the end of May 2012. So this only lasts a minute and a half. Let's have a listen. Okay. This And trust me, Val, this is coming for you guys. Here we go. Let's have a listen back. We're at the end of May 2012. 161 days, almost to the hour, since these workers refused to leave without their money. Just before three o'clock, they finally marched out of the dark, deserted factory into blazing sunshine and a rousing reception. Jim Power says it's been a tough five months. 
but this was a moment to treasure. Brilliant. PJ, I can't say enough about it. Bye, brilliant. We just can't. We're overwhelmed by the support. Helen Crowley says as it dragged on, they got stronger as colleagues and became more like a family. Oh, yeah. We get to anything. And Cal O'Leary says it was that strength that carried them in the bad days. We dug in and, and, and we supported one another and I suppose with the help of our, our partners, our wives, our girlfriends, our friends, or whatever, we, we dug in and, and they, they gave us the great support and, and it's also brilliant. for Christmas, New Year, St. Patrick's Day, Easter Sunday, and they finally march out just a week short of Whit Weekend. They become household names, reluctant celebrities who stuck by each other with tremendous support, not just here in Cork, but all over the world. They've become and will forever be remembered as working class heroes. And if I can be allowed to comment personally on this great day, it's been a pleasure and an honour to tell their story. Oh, God. Memories. <laughs> that was unbelievable, PJ. <laughs> there. Have you ever heard that before, lads? No? First time, PJ. I think you were you were in the pub at that stage and it was well deserved. <laughs> we were in Sullivan. We were in Sullivan that day, PJ. Sullivan's who looked after us very well over the course of the Well, that was your moment, and I played yeah. it because I think that the moment will come. Is Val there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can put Yeah. I just I played that moment because yeah. I, I think that for Val and for her colleagues Hi. in whatever shape it comes your moment will come please God yeah. <laughs> please God we'll keep our fingers toes and everything crossed well you, you gave me the quote you gave me the quote of the week <laughs> you gave me the quote of the week Val because this is the one I've been using this all morning if I, I know. have to stay here until I'm 90 years of age we will get it well I sincerely hope I won't be bringing that birthday cake down to you on your 90th I hope so <laughs> listen keep her lit as we've been saying That's from right. start to finish alright Jim Power Calladary Valerie Collin from Debenhams all the Debenhams workers and all their supporters to mark a very special day a day we never wanted to get to and unfortunately it's not over yet thank you all 1850 and yes I am biased, unashamedly so. And I sincerely hope something can be, something has to be done. In fact, where is it now? Yes, there he is. There he is. Like, let's have a follow-up on this, shall we? The treatment of the Debenham workers has been uh, very, very shabby and shoddy uh, and unacceptable. And I've made that point on a number of occasions. Notwithstanding the difficulties that the parent company, company was in, or is in, uh, the failure to honour the collective agreements that these workers had entered into is, in my view, unacceptable. Uh, and the manner in which they've been treated, uh, unacceptable in terms of the uh, performance of the company. I've met with the workers uh, on a number of occasions, both uh, in the Taoiseach's office and indeed on the picket line. Um, no, look, we know that corporate law is intact. Corporate law has to be followed to the letter. You can't break corporate law. But surely our lawmakers can sit down after. And I'm reminded not just of Vita Cortex, not just of Clearies, but people are telling me here, remember the postal strike in 1979. And remember Irish Steel stroke ISPAT in 2001, where Richard Bruton said at the time it would never be allowed to happen again. And that comes in from Jim. So it's 161 days. Let us hope we won't be here for 200, but if we have to be, we will. Sean Defoe, who was on with me earlier on, political correspondent, has tweeted that it looks like level three COVID restrictions will come in 
and will last until October 5th in Dublin, with the government having extended other legal regulations until then too. Neffert is also examining whether Dublin needs a sort of level 3.5, that that could circulate around home visits, attendance at third level, or wet pubs, but nothing confirmed yet. But Neffert are looking for level 3 in Dublin and maybe more. 1850 715 Cork's 96 FM and Cork City Council present Culture Night Cork City. Friday, September 18th. Friday, September 18th. Connect through culture with free events, physical, online and hybrid in over 60 city venues. From dancing and film, music and art to theatre and literature. Venues across the city will open their doors, both virtually and in reality, for one night only. Including a live streamed performance from City Hall Concert Hall with the Vanbrook Quartet for the entire family on Friday, September 18th only. See more on Facebook and Twitter at Cork City Arts or check out Culture Night Cork City on Instagram. Visit culturenightcork.ie for the full program with Cork City Council, The Echo and Echo Live and Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Now, Alec Moore uh, has spoken to me in the past about doing uh, charity fundraisers for the likes of Pieta House. You've got one coming up in... The next couple of weeks, I think, Alec. Good morning. Hi. Morning. What are you planning? We're doing a, a gig. Well, yeah, it'll be more of a family day with it involved as well. So it's just a lot of musicians getting together for uh, to raise money for Pierre House, basically. Yeah. Where are you going to do it? Uh, down in Black Rock Village. Okay, and the 27th. The, the market to be on, you know, in the morning and... That yeah. evening, then we done a few through the COVID. There, we done a, a fundraiser there a couple of months back. We made seven hundred euro. Right. We, we done one up in Onslow Gardens, in the outside my friend's uh, front door. Yeah, two of us. We made seven hundred euro there as well. Yeah, uh, Padraig Tuig and Charlie O'Connell and myself done that. But there's loads of musicians, Andy Dunn, uh, Joe Fitz, there'll be uh, Cork Academy of Music, 30 right. years ago, I was on the first course there in the Glen Hall, and oh, there'll be a few from there. Uh, Brilliant. And, well. and, and they'll all be spaced out and distanced out properly? Oh, yeah. We'll, yeah. Everything yeah. will be. Of course. Why is um, Peter so important to you, Alec? Well... Basically, I've suffered with depression twice, and I, yeah, and mental health, and the whole, actually, I couldn't, I stopped playing music and everything when it happened first time, I just couldn't, and my doctor actually was brilliant, Dr. McNeese, he didn't force, um, you know, medication on me straight away, and all that. And when you went to Pieta, what what did well, they do for you? Well, I actually didn't go to Pieta. Like, I, at the, the very first time, I was so down and 
I said to my doctor, what should I do? Go out to the gym, go running, go out to the uh, counselling. And he said, you're too low. Like, you know, yeah. you need to take medication and you'll bring me up with this. Yes. But all, like, I actually went to Joe and um, he was on 103 yesterday morning, actually, with Patricia Messenger. Mm-hmm. And that brought it back to me as well. I, I could be on that, but like, my mother rang me one day and she said, he's, I think you should go to him and, you know. And yeah. But Pierre, the host, then, I, I, like, they'll just, I think that, like, it's all, they don't have no funding from the government, blah, yeah. blah, and yeah. it's just a great um well, the work that they do is incredible oh, and they've really, helped so yeah. many families over, over the years and I think on the day on the 27th you're going to have a counsellor there giving yeah, their time there'll be someone from it's John actually in Pierre the when he presented me with the cheque recently I said John I want to make it we have to make it a good day like and get everyone involved oh sorry we're doing we have spot prizes as well mm, okay that we're giving out tickets, like, and okay. but uh, we're actually, if anyone out there would like to give uh, spot prizes, okay, we have a lot from the community in Black Rock, but like, yeah. so- sounds like a good. It's the, it's a Sunday, isn't it? And hopefully, yeah, the hopefully the weather will hold. Yeah. What what time are you kicking off? Six to eight. Like, right. but there'll be guest singers. There's loads of. There'll be a couple of young. Yeah, singers there, they're brilliant. Great, all right. And, and, and all properly socially distanced oh, yeah. and everything and done properly. Just, if you w- wouldn't mind mentioning, we'd, we're just looking if anyone would like to sponsor, like uh, a can, not a, not a canopy, like a. Like a gazebo or something? Yeah. Some kind of a shelter. To cover us in case the, the rain, you know, right. the equipment. If okay. it does rain. Okay. Well, uh, maybe, maybe someone would come on board with that. There's a lot of that stuff out there not being used because there's no events mm, on. A friend of mine, actually, I, when I said it to him yesterday, um, he said, oh, I just gave away a marquee to this fella and whatever. Yeah. So, uh, well, if anybody would would like to help with that, 27th of September, we want to be able to shelter some musicians for a, a charity fundraiser. Yeah, they, yeah. Can, they can contact us here. Very good. All right. And uh, we're thinking, like, of if obviously there will be kids there, and I was going to say balloons or something like that, but that, but the COVID probably wouldn't work. But no. maybe stilt walk or, or something, or some kind of. You never know. We could, look. There's a, there's a couple of weeks to go between this and that, and we'll see what can be brought be together great, and make yeah. a nice evening. And you know, you never know who'd pile in to help down there because it's a good community, great little village. And I, I'm going to leave it there for no reason other than time. That's the 27th of September, Black Rock Village. Alec Moore and his mates, musicians, organising a fundraiser for Pieta House. It'll be music and events like that, all properly distanced, all properly sanitised, all properly separated out to raise money for a Pieta House. And if you need help, Pieta are on 1-800-247-247. Go to the Samaritans, 116-123. Call your GP, or if you're in real trouble and someone's in immediate risk, you can call 999 or 112. Thanks to... Fergal, who edited the show this morning, Katie on the phones, and to you as well for your messages and comments. It's been a busy one, but that's it. Uh, We're back in the morning, just after nine. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.